Before we get started, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. With that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, Portfolio Manager at Rangely. With me as always, my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris DeMuth. Uh, Today, we're going to start with a big deal in the auto sector, and then we're going to move on to rising pay at nonprofits. Uh, So Chris, let's start with GM selling their European brands, uh, Opel and I believe Vauxhall is how you say the second one? I'm not sure. Uh, They announced this agreement on Monday. They're selling those two brands. Uh, Opel is a historic German brand. Vauxhall is a historic British brand, and they're selling them both to PSA, uh, Peugeot, I believe. And they're selling them for $2.1 billion, which I'm putting in air quotes over here. Um, You know, the Wall Street Journal said for PSA, this is a daring move. It brings them to 16% market share in Europe. They're going to be the second largest player, surpassing their French rival, uh, Nissan Renault, and putting them right behind Volkswagen. Uh, For GM, they're exiting their European division after 20 years and over $15 billion in cumulative losses. Uh, I think there's a lot to talk about. One thing I I do want to talk about here is, is this going to jumpstart some consolidation in the auto industry? Uh, Because this is the second auto move we've seen in the past couple months after, you know, it had been years and years since there had been any consolidation in the auto industry before this. Uh, we want to talk about that. Lots of interesting things to talk about. I'll turn it over to you. I have a couple different directions that I want to take this, but I just want to start by saying that we are both friends and colleagues, and to lose $15 billion over 20 years and not kind of stop, or if I get halfway there, you know, if I'm 10 years into this, I'm like, hey, Andrew, I'm doing this thing. I've lost 7 or $8 billion. Just tell me, just stop. <laughs> time, just stop. Time to call it quits. At some point, you just fire yourself and you say, this is not working. And uh, so call me on that, please. I just need, you need some leash. But like, boy, GM, the scale that they can do something awful. And so do this underfunded money losing year after year business and never uh, reconsider it until now. You know, it really shows some stick to itness that is excessive. And I, I thought it was kind of funny. Some of the articles were saying, like, "Oh yeah, you know, they they were they were committed to this new Opel turnaround, which after fifteen year after twenty years and fifteen billion dollars, like how many turnarounds did you get? But they they were committed until they realized they weren't going to turn a profit this year because of the Brexit. And it was like this is the first. A lot of companies blame things here or there on Brexit, but like to sell a two three billion dollar division because of the Brexit fail." destroying your 15-year turnaround plan? Like, that is crazy. That is insanity to me. Tenacity is a virtue, but if it's your only virtue, then it's not a <laughs> virtue. Because at some point, you need to let the world kind of communicate to you uh, constraints uh, and shut doors in your face as they should have a long time ago. Um, the, the buyer here has sworn off all the things that I love about M&A. Uh, the ability to quickly and decisively mm-hmm. do what makes sense with no nostalgia, no sentimentality towards bloated headcount and redundant facilities. There are a lot of people who need to go. There are a lot of facilities that need to go. Uh, revenue synergies, often largely BS, cost savings are real. And so, uh, you know, you look at the commitments that they're making and it's making commitments to not do a lot of the things that make sense. They need to fire people and shut down facilities. And meanwhile, they're going around to the politicians telling them that they're not to, uh, not going to. And so they're really, they're lying to somebody, they're lying to their shareholders or to the politicians about cost cutting potentially hopefully they're lying to the politicians who deserve it. <laughs> that is, hopefully they're lying to the politicians. No, I, I completely agree. You know, the deal started getting rumored a couple weeks ago, and mm-hmm. the first thing everyone was saying was like, the governments are going to have a word to say about this. And every government, as soon as the deal gets announced, they 
uh, GM CEO and PSA CEO, they're making the rounds, promising the governments, hey, we're not going to fire anyone. Hey, we're not going to close plants, which is good if you need to get the deal done. It might not be great if you need to get the deal done in a way that produces uh, value for shareholders. And I just thought it was kind of interesting. You know, we talk about Donald Trump a lot on this podcast. It was kind of interesting to me to think about Donald Trump, every deal, everything that's happening. He wants promises for job creations. Mm -hmm. He wants factories coming back here. And, you know, it's very reminiscent of Europe for decades has been you can't fire anyone. And that's why their businesses have probably lagged ours a little bit. Uh, and that's what they're demanding here. It's very consistent with that type of borderline socialist, can't fire anyone type policy. It's a very Trumpy deal. Uh, they describe this, this is going to be a European champion, to use that vaguely authoritarian term. Um, and, you know, I look at that and I think of Airbus, for example. When they look at their supply contracts within the EU, they pride themselves yeah, uh, geographical yeah, yeah, diversity. Yeah. They they drive things in trucks back and forth across the continent of Europe very intentionally. They hope that they don't have supply that is next to each other in the supply chain so they can do efficiently. They try to make it as inefficient as possible. And uh, I look at this and there's a lot reminiscent of that uh, structure in this, but it gets a lot of political support. One of the things uh, SpaceX, I was, I've mentioned Elon Musk's book a lot on this podcast. One of the things SpaceX was talking about was they were competing with uh, a Lockheed and Boeing joint venture that sent mm-hmm. most of our rockets into space before them and that joint venture like they they called out like hey we employ hundreds of small businesses and thousands of people and that was a real point of pride for them not the economics behind their shuttle right. launches not low cost it was we are a job creating company and spacex came and kind of wiped the floor with them because they cared about keeping costs as low as possible and getting rocket ships into mm-hmm. the space efficiently and uh you, you know, and I think something with this, we can't cut a lot of costs. Like PSA, obviously they think it's going to be a strategic deal, but they are talking about, hey, we're going to get these brands to 2% operating margins by 2020. We think we can get them to cash flow break even or cash flow positive by 2020. Like when you're talking 2% gro- uh, operating margins and cash flow break even three to four years from now, like you're not exactly talking heroic, heroic targets or heroic amounts of cost cutting. So, yeah, I, I, I was having the identical reaction in terms of the tempo here. You know, they kind of alluded to R&D purchasing and manufacturing savings, but the dates they're talking about. Yeah. I mean, if you think also, I, I was going through the technological and industry development that's reasonably likely in the tempo they're talking about. You don't even know what this industry is going to look like in 2026 when they're going to combine operations mm-hmm. by then. I mean, that is just... Like the Wright brothers, kind of laying out a fifty-year plan for uh, aviation. I mean, you—they have no idea what it's going to look like. Look, I don't know if self-driving electric cars are coming five, ten, twenty, or thirty years from now, but I do know they're coming. And there's a chance that by the time they've combined R and D operations for this Mm -hmm. company, there's a chance they're here, and like their R and D operations are worth absolutely nothing. Uh, let's turn to can, can I, one last sentence. Ahead, go, I, just, I don't want to. Um, I want to stay on here. But okay, go ahead. Carlos Tavares, the, the the CEO is a good CEO, mm-hmm. uh, better than average in this industry. And if you look at the best. Uh, auto CEOs, probably most institutions like this, there, there is a rage. It's very dynamic on how good the management team is. This will be an upgrade for Opal, just to land on something Yeah, and else. look, a lot of people have said this. Uh, PSA needed a bailout four years ago from the French yeah. government. They brought this guy in. He's uh, PSA is 
I don't know if thriving is the right word, but they're doing very well. Their stock's up four times since mm-hmm. he took over. So I, I think you're absolutely right there. I, I just want to wrap it up here. You know, uh, we kind of alluded to it uh, when in the lead-in, but the question I think is, is this the start of some auto industry consolidation? Nissan Renault bought uh, Mitsubishi's auto parts for a little over $2 billion late 2016. Now you've got this. Is this the start of kind of uh, is this the start of bigger deals? I think Fiat has Fiat uh, Chrysler has been a very openly willing seller for the past couple of years. They approached GM about a deal in 2015 or 2016, and on the heels of this deal, they came out uh, and said, "Hey, maybe VW wants to buy us now. Hey, maybe this frees G- maybe this is the first step for GM getting small enough that they could politically buy us." Uh, I, I think in some regards it does make sense, you know. A lot of people have said, hey, this industry has too much capacity. The R&D costs are big. There are kind of newcomers coming. It's getting ready to uh, – things are getting ready to change. They could consolidate and cut a lot of costs. But on the other hand, uh, I, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll turn it over to you. What do you think? There should be more deals. Absolutely. It's been a apocalyptically bad industry for M&A. I mean the number of deals mm-hmm. that are done and then undone and the bankers get paid on both sides has been a, a constant theme. Um, but yeah, no, if, if you can manage better and cost, it should be an industry that, uh, that, that, that they could do more. Um, and the, uh, the problem is how you deal with just the legacy uh, pension costs, other problems related to uh, inefficiency and the trade unions and the governments are inefficiency creating machines. No, I, I think that's great. The, the Fiat CEO, he famously called uh, the industry, uh, I think he had a presentation called Confessions of a Capital Addict. And he said the industry, we just burn capital. This is ridiculous. We need to consolidate. We need to cut down. Uh, and he was clearly making overtures at GM. And some GM executives came out and were like, why would we bail him out? Like, they've got pension issues. Right. They've got all these legacy issues. Why, why would we do this? Uh, I, I think the same thing applies today. Why would a GM, which is kind of slimming down and getting more profitable, why would they take out a smaller competitor? And if they did, like, you know, you if they if GM and Fiat, which owns Chrysler combined, like they probably need to shut down dealerships. They probably need to shut down plants. They might even need to shut down a brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, would Donald Trump allow that deal to go through? I don't think he'd be very happy to see the, these guys combining and closing one plant or costing one job. So I think it's interesting politically if that could happen. You, you compare it to the airline industry a little bit, where the the best uh, the best solution for terminal legacy issues is bankruptcy wash it through bankruptcy there's not a better way to do than that but also you have JetBlue, you have southwest you have uh, these kind of innovative new startups you don't really have that in the auto other than the electric companies yeah. and i think that that is going to be the solution i think that we are at the one yard line for the end of human driven internal combustion engine machines it'll be one of the great step forwards in terms of the environment and safety and they're fast uh and so there's a lot of uh, advantages about the next stage but it'll be new companies for the next stage i don't think there's gonna be new innovative kind of human driven internal combustion engine machine companies and i don't think there's going to be much you can do with companies that are encumbered by legacy union issues perfect so let's turn over to charity officials getting big paydays uh we based this off a wall street journal article that ran over the weekend uh it shows charities are becoming more more generous with their top brass uh Mm -hmm. the fact they cited was 
there were more than 2,700 CEOs for charities and nonprofits that got paid seven figures or more in 2014. And that was up 33% since 2011. That's the 2014 kind of being the last data available. Uh, you know, some of this is coming from big enterprises like big nonprofit hospital chains that are pay- generating billions in revenues and paying big salaries to the CEO. But some of it are coming from small charities where basically all the donations are going straight to the top brass. They mentioned a ministry that took in $8 million in donations and paid about $4 million to their uh, the husband and wife team that were running it. Uh, and there was a lot of quotes about nonprofit pay becoming more and more like public company pay. Complex bonus systems, deferred comp arrangements, big paychecks. And a lot of people are kind of pushing back on this saying, hey, we give charities huge tax breaks, over $100 billion annually in federal tax breaks alone. Why should you kind of get this big payday? Is this just kind of a loop to get around IRS loopholes and stuff? Uh, so I'll, I'll turn it over to you for first thoughts. I think this is uh, deeply problematic and inherently corrupt. I think that uh, it's fun to play pretend if you're a child or with a child, but if you're an adult playing pretend and dealing with the fantasy that it's for charitable purposes, but it's largely for profit. And both, I should say, I love profit and I love charity. They're just separate topics. And I think the collusion between the two is hugely problematic. And I think it is a tax subsidy harvesting scheme. Um, one solution would be to remove the tax deductibility for all nonprofit overhead. Um, and another, and I think that this has a lot of scope to be uh, uh, accused of uh, being kind of unsophisticated, uh, but as a knuckle-dragging uh, troglodyte, I would say that private organizations should be free First of all, absolutely overpay management all you want. It's none of my business. But the taxpayer should have nothing to do with that. Yeah. And then secondly, uh, the tax deductibility, I think, should go away for causes that are economically regressive, that benefit groups that are richer than the average taxpayer. Um, I have family members. I am culturally pretty lowbrow. I have a lot of family members who love art, who love, for example, the opera. I think opera fans should be able to pay for the finest sets and costumes. But why does the taxpayer have anything yeah. to do with yeah. that? Uh, so if you want to effectively, with real metrics, benefit the least and the lost, I say I understand why that is a substitute for public charity. So the idea why that could have a tax benefit, I on the margin accept, but I would exclude anything that is regressive and anything that's overhead. So I love all the things you're talking about, and I think we might have bit off a little more than we can chew for a six-minute segment. But uh, I guess the thing I was kind of drawing the line at was – Look, put aside uh, nonprofit hospital systems, which sure. are, again are you know they're eight billion dollar revenue things. Put aside the questionability of if they should be publicly traded for profit enterprises or if they should get this tax break for being a nonprofit. Let's ignore that. But for me, the difference was kind of look paying a nonprofit hospital CEO tens of millions of dollars when his peers at for-profit hospitals get paid that. I can actually see that because, hey, you're, it's a competitive marketplace for hospital CEOs. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're kind of – they're a revenue-driven organization. Mm-hmm. I kind of don't mind paying revenue-driven. It's more it's more competitive business, right? For me, the issue was when you're paying a donation-based organization, when you're paying their top brass huge salaries, because in a way, they're almost a, they're almost a salesman raising money slash – it's almost a little bit – Ponzi scheme isn't quite the word, but you know you're you're selling that somebody's donated to charity, and then their charity donation is actually just going into your paycheck. I, that was really where the line kind of hit me. I don't know what you yeah, think about no, that. I, I think that things that uh, are honest 
and measurable and trying to be extremist in favor of honesty and being measurable, I think is important. Just an analogy, and I happened to notice this out of the corner of my eye recently. If you look at the for-profit job, I think a lot of people would say, oh, you think it's better? I'm not saying that at all. I think that the job of maximizing shareholder value can be judged net and is measurable. You know, you look at the new uh, CSX CEO, Hunter Harrison, is he worth millions of dollars per year? I would look at the capital market they seem to think he's worth many billions of dollars, rightly or wrongly. Let me just so CSX, big railroad. Yep. Uh, they, they, an activist came with a very well respected uh, railroad executive said, "Hey, make him CEO." And the stock market value of the company went up about ten billion dollars yep. on the news. And the company was pushing back, "Hey, we don't want to pay this guy three hundred yep. million." And what you're saying is. Three hundred million. That. He created ten billion dollars of value. Just the thought of him running this railroad. Three hundred million is an okay comp for him. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. If you're a schmuck shareholder, you own a share. Just judge it net. If you say, is he somehow intrinsically, in absolute terms, worth that? Is he working a thousand times harder than him? Get that out of your mind. Just judge it net. You're better off. You're enriched by this. In in terms of the not for profit sector, I think it's so hard. And I would say just one little point here on something I'm deeply skeptical of. When somebody says, I'm a do-gooder, I'm not in this for the money, and they're not willing to do anything that is sacrificial, I think that that's something that's worthy of a lot of skepticism. Um, uh, Just quickly, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is a big kind of, he's environmentalist Themed. He likes to be thought of as an environmentalist. He has flown in his eyebrow groomer uh, who comes in, sometimes uses his private jet to groom his eyebrows. Uh, he flies, again, private jet like Al Gore to go to global right. warming conferences. They say We're they're do-gooders. It's questionable. Okay, perfect. Well, we are way over time. Sorry. That's all the time we have for today. Uh, before we hit our disclosures, just a quick reminder. If you like this podcast, please be sure to follow and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Audio Boom. Uh, disclosures, Chris really only talked about the car companies and Leonardo DiCaprio. I don't long, know if you're long either of those. I disclose that I'm in it for profit. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, I don't know how you could be in this podcast for profit, but that's okay. <laughs> we'll talk to you guys probably tomorrow.